Okay, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Second Timothy, and we're going to continue our study in chapter 3. Now last week we, uh, we were going to try and do the whole chapter, we managed the first three verses, so we didn't get very far, but it was a... I think an important time to look at just look at these things that some 2,000 years ago Paul said were going to impact the last days. So before we turn to uh, the scripture, let's just bow our hearts one more time and just commit this time of study to the Lord, shall we? Let's pray. Father, we ask you to illuminate your word to us now. Give us eyes that can see, ears that can hear, we pray. Uh, Father, give us the humility to listen to what your spirit is saying to us. And Lord, give us hearts that are willing to respond as he moves amongst us this morning. Uh, Lord, we thank you that scripture is not of any private interpretation, but your Holy Spirit gives us understanding as we come before you and we allow you to minister to us. We give you this time now for your glory in Jesus' name. So, again, apostasy in the last days. We looked at this last week. I just thought it was, uh, again, just worth highlighting. Uh, In the universe, there is God and there are people and things. We should worship God, love people, and use things. If we start worshipping ourselves, we will ignore God, start loving things, and using people. And in a sense, it's a great summary of this chapter. So the first part of this chapter that we're going to look at again this morning, because that's exactly the world that we're living in now. People... I become a lovers of selves, lovers of pleasure, and so on. And God no longer features in their lives, in their thoughts, in their mindset. And so people become lovers of themselves, and so that things are used to uh, benefit them. And people become just objects um, for people's gratification or for fulfillment in whatever area, whichever way. Uh, and really is a, a formula for a miserable life. <clears throat> I read this during the week, and I thought it was quite apt, so I'm just going to share this with you. Um, <clears throat> This, uh, just yours, Lord, just a quote from Chronicles. Yours, Lord, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, and the victory, and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all, and in your hand is power and might. That's what we're told in First Chronicles 29. Um, this uh, scholar commentated and said this, In these days of man-centered religion, verses like this have been ignored. The pulpits of our land preach a defeated God, a disappointed Christ, and a defenseless Holy Spirit. Man has been deified and God dethroned. God has been relegated to the background. The God most people believe in has benevolent intentions, yet he's unable to carry them out. He wants to bless men, but they will not let him. The average churchgoer thinks Satan has gained the upper hand, and that God is to be pitied rather than worshipped. The God of popular Christianity has a weak smile and a halo. To suppose in the slightest that God has failed or that he's been defeated is the height of foolishness and the depth of impiety. The religious world needs to get God off the charity list. The Bible knows nothing of a defeated, disappointed, and a defenseless God. The God of the Bible is the almighty God, Genesis 17, 1, who has all power in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28, 18. With him nothing is impossible, Luke 1, 37, that's the verse we had this morning, wasn't it? That's uh, one of the verses that Nat read to us. 
Yet with him nothing's impossible or too hard. Jeremiah 32.17 reminds us of that. His eternal purpose is being worked out. Everything is going according to his plan and all things are under his control. The God of the Bible is the supreme being in the universe. He is the most high, higher than the highest. He has no superiors and no equals. God is God. He does as he pleases, only as he pleases, and always as he pleases. He is in one mind, and who can turn him? What his soul desires, even that he does. Job twenty three thirteen reminds us. Agreeing with this is Psalm 115, verse 3. But our God is in the heavens. He has done whatever he pleased. As the master of the world, he declares, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Isaiah 46 verse 10. God is a supreme being and the sovereign of the universe. He exercises his power as he wills, when he wills, and where he wills. That was uh, by an individual called Milburn Cockrell. And he just concludes and says this, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. No one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? God governs all his creatures and their actions. The events that take place on earth do not take place by chance or fate or luck. The so-called accidents are not even incidents with the master of the world. He numbered the hairs of our head and noted the sparrows fall in eternity past by his determinate counsel and foreknowledge. The master of the world set the bounds of our habitation on earth. The number of our months is in his hand and our days are appointed. God is holding the helm of the universe and regulating all events. The master of the world works all things after the counsel of his own will, Ephesians 1.11. And it is God's eternal right to do all his pleasure. He is not accountable to any of his creatures. Job 33.13 declares he gives no account of any of his matters. God controls all things or nothing. He must either rule or be ruled. He must either sway or be swayed. He must either accomplish his will or be thwarted by his creatures. He is not obligated to leave the affairs of this world to be governed by accident, chance, or the will of sinful men. If we admit that God absolutely governs all things according to the counsel of his own will, then we admit that he has determined what shall and what shall not transpire in time and eternity. To deny his universal control of all things is to deny his eternal power and Godhead. If he has the power and wisdom to determine all events, then he can cause all things to work together for good to those who love him. Well, that was great. i share that with you. Go up online later if you want to look at that again. Last time we were looking at this scripture as we went into 2 Timothy chapter 3. We thought that men should be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, holy. And again, just to remind you that uh, the European Court of Human Rights uh, passed this law uh, not to defame Muhammad uh, or Allah, uh, upholding uh, the Sharia uh, blasphemy law. Um, it's incredible that people can, as we were saying earlier, blaspheme, use the name of Jesus however they want, whenever they want, and nobody even apparently blinks an eye. 
but you speak anything against Muhammad or against Allah, and, and suddenly you're, you're at the risk of being imprisoned. Uh, it's incredible the way uh, these things are. <clears throat> Isaiah 20, sorry, Isaiah 5 verse 20 to 21 says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Once again, this is the world that we're living in today. The last verse we looked at last time, Paul said, these are the things that are come, going to come in the last days, in the days that we're living in right now. The people who will be without natural affection, we talked uh, much about that last time. Truce breakers, false accusers, uh, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. We went through those things in detail last time. So, to pick it up from verse 4. Uh, and people are going to be traitors, we're told. Heady, high-minded. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. These things we see, you know, traitors and betrayers. This is very much the case we see with people in the world. Um, so many people make promises and then break those promises. But, you know, we see it even within the church. You know, uh, and there are some people within the church that, that are not trustworthy. Uh, and it's a sad state of affairs. The idea of people being heady is being reckless. Now, in one sense, there's an element where Christians should be reckless. You know, we should be willing to abandon all and trust Jesus Christ. And maybe the world would look at that as a kind of a recklessness. But that's not what's being referred to here. The the recklessness here is just a complete abandon for any uh, sense of law or morality or rule. Just a a complete uh, rejection of any authority. And this is, of course, you know, the idea of of evolution and these things that have been propagated uh, for the last couple of hundred years is all just taking away that foundation of any moral basis to life. That we're all completely autonomous and free to make our own decisions, our own choices for life. As a result of these things, we said last time, this, this isn't just some random list that Paul rattles off. If you look, there's a progression as we go through these things. You know, as a result of people being heady or reckless, they become high-minded, thinking that their opinion is the opinion that matters. You know, it's incredible how much pride we see today as people speak, as, you know, newspaper articles are written. Uh, I'm amazed continually, you know, in in the morning, often I pick up a Metro uh, free newspaper, and then the Evening Standard in the evening, and just scour it, just to see kind of what's going on in the world, what things are being said. And we have people writing columns that have no experience or knowledge about certain subjects, and yet they write with authority, as if we are supposed to accept what they say because they're a journalist. And we see the same on television, repeatedly, people speaking, you know, so assured of their own position. My question always is, though, what is your foundation? What do you base what you believe on? You know, for us as Christians, our basis is the word of God. That's the foundation. That's what we build on. That's a rock-solid foundation. It stood the test of time. It's God's word. But what are these people building their positions on? Their ideas about life and how things should or shouldn't be done. What is or isn't right. You know, people are very quick to tell us we're wrong. But on what basis are they saying that? You know, how do they make that conclusion? How do they come to that conclusion? How do they make that decision? Who is it that is setting the rules and the laws that govern what is right and what is wrong? Seemingly every individual is right to do that. Well, then I can set those rules as well. 
Surely, if somebody else could tell me that I'm wrong by their standard, well, I can turn that around and say, well, they're wrong by my standard. You just lose all point of reference. And we get to this verse, or this portion of the verse in the 18th one on this list. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And is that not a characteristic of the age in which we live? You know, and you know, you think of how much money is spent on the entertainment industry, how much money is spent to try and amuse us. You know, A, you put the prefix A before a word, it means not, like a theist doesn't believe in God and so on. To A, muse is not to think. And the whole industry is based upon encouraging us not to think. The world would love us not to think. Why? Well, when we start thinking, we start using our brains, someone might ask the question, is this right? Should we be doing this? What's the basis for this? What do we believe? Why do we believe? Somebody this week challenged me. I was talking about what I believe. And they said, yeah, but you know, they said, there's no evidence. And I turned around and I said, you have got to be joking. Possibly the wrong person to say that to. So we had a long conversation and we're going to pick that conversation up next week. In fact, I'm very, I really feel stirred and I might well do this. Like the science versus evolution leaflet I did. I might do another one just simply titled, Why I Believe. And just go through looking from a historical basis. The, the historical evidence for Christianity. You know, the fact that you can go to Saudi Arabia today, that you can find a mountain where the top of it is burnt black. And this is not um, volcanic rock. This is granite that has been superheated. I personally know somebody who knew someone that went there and spoke to them. In fact, it was the previous pastor here, Ron Matson. Uh, knew Bob Cornuke personally. Bob Cornuke went to the mountain, got some of the rock, took it back to America, got it into a laboratory, said, can you test that and tell me what it is? And they said, yeah, it's superheated granite. Where did you find it? And he said, well, interesting story. It's on top of a mountain that the Bible refers to as Mount Sinai, a mountain that the Bible says God came down on the top of that mountain in fire. And you go to this place, and not only have you got that, but round the base of the mountain, you've got the remains of 12 pillars that were erected, which the Bible says happened. You've got an altar that had been set up for sacrificing animals. You've got evidence of huge erosion from a split rock, which is right in the location that the Bible says it should be, in an area of the world where there's hardly any rainfall. You've got an altar at the base of this mountain where on the side of it, and it's been, it's been fenced off by the Saudi government now, but you can still see that there are paintings of the Apis bull, the bull that was worshipped in Egypt. Well, the Bible says that at that location, the children of Israel, while Moses was up the mountain, decided they were going to build their own kind of god and say that was the god that led us out of Egypt, and they came up with this bull, and they worshipped at this location where there happens to be this huge cluster of rocks put together and these drawings on the side. Don't tell me there's no evidence. That's just historically. When we start looking mathematically, we can start to look at the work of people like Ivan Pannon. Some of you may be aware of that. Who takes, for example, the uh, Gospel of Matthew and just looks at the genealogy there. Everything divisible by sevens. You know, the number of letters, the number of words, the number of male names, the number of female names. You know, it's a, it's a mathematical masterpiece beyond any attempt that man could have come up with. And it's not just there. You know, you go to the books of the Bible and you find, if you look at the, the words that do not occur in the other books of the New Testament, for example, 
And you have to conclude that, for example, the Gospel of Matthew had to have been written last because of the structure and the things that he puts in there. And then you go to the Gospel of Luke and you say, well, he must have written his last because he must have had Matthew's account in order to write his account. And then you go to Mark and you have to conclude the same. And you end up realizing that this is a masterpiece beyond any attempt that man could have come up with. You know, the historical evidence is just overwhelming. Everywhere you go in the ancient world, you'll find exactly where the Bible said things were, you'll find those things have been discovered. You know, you've got the work of people like um, Dr. Robert, or uh, sorry, Professor Robert Wilson. Incredible. Spent 45 years, could read, I can't remember how many, it's about 19 ancient Semitic languages, languages that aren't even in use today. He'd memorized the entire Old Testament in Hebrew. He was an expert in his profession. And his conclusion is there is not a single word in the Old Testament of which we need to have any doubt. And that's after 45 years of study, checking everything, looking at the kings that are mentioned in the Bible. Every single one of the kings mentioned in the Bible are exactly as found on ancient monuments and and things that have been found uh, from archaeological digs and so on. They're in their right place chronologically. They're in the right place historically. You know, you look at the rest of history that the world comes up with. You look at the kings of Egypt and their own lists. You can't even tell who spelt, which ones they are from the spelling. They're spelt wrong and they're in the wrong place chronologically. Now, the Bible is so incredibly accurate. So you can look from a historical point of view. You can look at it from a mathematical point of view. Yeah, we can look at it from a scientific point of view. Every statement the Bible makes scientifically is provable, it's demonstrable. You know, the Bible speaks about pathways in the sea in uh, Psalm, not sure, I can't remember which Psalm it is now. But it speaks of pathways in the sea. That led Matthew Murray Fontaine to go out and start looking. He came up with what now is the science of oceanography. Find that there literally are pathways in the sea. These ocean currents that go underneath the surface. Because he trusted what the Bible said. The Bible says that everything reproduces after its kind. And exactly as, as the Bible says, that's what we see in the world today. It turns out that Darwin's book was wrong and the Bible's right. Things don't become something other than they are. Now, from a scientific perspective, you know, in, in um, Ecclesiastes, in Job and so on, so many scientific statements are made that have later been proven to be correct. Even the fact that the Jews were to circumcise their, their, their baby boys on the eighth day, that's when this um, vitamin K, this clotting agent in the blood, is, is at its peak. It peaks 110% of normal on the eighth day. It's the best day to circumcise a child, because the blood will clot quicker and easier. How did Moses know that back then? You look at all the hygiene laws that the children of Israel are given. You know, through the, the Middle Ages, people thought the Jews had some sort of power and some curse on, on the rest of the world because they seemed to be much healthier. It was simply that they were following what the Bible had said. Now, don't ever say there's no evidence. The, the problem is, though, that we've got a, a generation of people that have grown up believing that there is no evidence. They've been told there is no evidence. And sadly, many in the church have not been prepared to stand back and say, you know, actually, no, there is overwhelming evidence. Do you know the, the New Testament is based upon eyewitness accounts? The resurrection is all based upon eyewitness accounts. When they were looking for a replacement for Judas, what did they want? 
They, want some, they wanted somebody who had been there from the beginning, that had seen everything and had been an eyewitness of the resurrection. That was the criteria. That's what they wanted. They didn't want somebody who'd heard about this stuff. They wanted somebody who'd been an eyewitness. You've only got to look at the comments by the Jewish leadership, which are not only recorded in scripture, but many in other uh, ancient documents as well. They testified to the miracles of Jesus. They testified to these things, because otherwise why would they have had this antagonism towards Jesus, wanting to get him out of the way? People say, oh, I don't believe miracles can happen. Well, that's okay, but you still opt to believe in things like evolution. You opt to believe in all sorts of crazy ideas. You know, I was talking to somebody recently, and they were saying, oh, do you believe in angels? And I went, yeah, I do, because the Bible says so. And I was just trying to, you know, poke a little bit of fun at me, saying how, how kind of archaic that is. I said, just let me ask you a question. Do you believe in extraterrestrial beings? And I went, well, probably, yeah. I think there's probably other planets out there. As ridiculous as that is, if you actually stop and study and you look at the possibilities of life on other planets, I said, well, I'm, I don't believe in extraterrestrial beings. I just simply believe in extra-dimensional beings. And when I put it that way, they went, oh, I hadn't thought about that. You see, people have become so conditioned to the kind of words we use and they just immediately dismiss it. But the idea that there are extra-dimensional beings in dimensions that we can't see, and we've got malevolent and benevolent, there's angelic forces that are seeking to undermine God's work and there are also those angels that serve the Lord that are seeking to fulfill and to be obedient to his will. And there's all sorts of evidence that we can cite, things we can point to. It's very compelling when we start going down that road. It's amazing that people, these high-minded people, immediately dismiss scripture, immediately turn around and say, it can't be true, don't believe it, no evidence. Again, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And this really is the issue, isn't it? That people really want to live their life the way they want to live their life. And the idea that there's a God... Well, from a political perspective, there's a real problem there. Because if there is a God, then our political parties are subject to that God. If there's a God, it's a real problem for our media, isn't it? Because it means they're no longer free to just write what they want to write, their opinions. And then when you bring it down to the individual level, if there is a God, then we are accountable to that God. That one day we will stand before that God and have to give account of how we have lived. And again, an individual I was speaking to recently was so blasé. Oh, well, you know, I said, yeah, what happens if you're wrong? Well, he said, I'll find out. I said, but doesn't that concern you that you may have made the biggest mistake of your life? I said, to, I used the very comfort example. I said, would you, would you sell one of your eyes for a million pounds? He said, well, no. I said, but you're willing to gamble your soul, which is far more precious than your eyes on just a hunch that you might be right, without even looking into it, without even asking any questions, without being willing to evaluate the evidence. Now, this world has become, just as Paul said 
lovers of pleasure, more interested in doing what they want to do. All about achieving the goals that they set out to achieve. Having the nice house or the nice car or attractive spouse, whatever the world puts us there as some sort of milestone, some sort of measure of success. But it doesn't bring happiness, does it? How many times we read of these celebrities that seem to have everything and yet have nothing? They're empty, their lives are miserable. People have become lovers of pleasure, they've tried to serve pleasure and they found that it leaves them empty. I can ask this morning, I know what answer I'd get, if I asked anybody here who is truly a lover of God, I would hope that it's most of us, I hope it's all of us. If I, ever, if I ask you the question, have you ever been let down by God, by God, by loving God? Have you ever been in a position where you felt you've loved God and it just wasn't reciprocated? That's foolish. The more we love God, the more God overwhelms us with his love for us. The more we seek to serve him and give him of all that we have and all that we are, the more he gives back. You cannot outgive God. The moment you start giving to God, we just become aware of our own utter unworthiness before him, but of his great redemption that allows us to stand in his presence. And of the incredible blessings, not only that we experience now, but that are promised in the the time to come, in the ages ahead of us. Yet we're told that he can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. You you can't even think of all the blessings that God will pour upon your life if you just trust him. Sometimes people are lovers of pleasure because they feel that their roots will be less painful. It will be more enjoyable. And yet, as I've shared before, you know, if you were in that position before the foundation of the world and you had this opportunity for an audience with God and God just shows you on the table to the side there a plan for your life that he's put together and says you can either accept that or you can go away and write your own plan. He says, in fact, go away, write your own plan. You go away and you spend two or three days, you write your own plan for your life of everything you want, all the things that you would like to see happen, all the successes and you know, and all the material benefits and everything else. And you come back to God with this plan. And then he says, okay, choose one. Who could honestly say they would choose their plan over God's? God who knows everything, who is outside of time. God who is good and does good. A God who is a God of love. Could any of us honestly say that we would honestly choose our plan? We who make mistakes on a moment-by-moment basis? No. We would choose God's plan, wouldn't we? And that's really the, the message of Scripture. That we need to trust Him and His power, His work of redemption through Jesus Christ. To trust His plan for our lives. The Bible here, 2 Timothy 3 verse 5, speaks of those that have a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. 
you know, you look around the, the country and you will see so many that have a form of godliness. They will profess to serve God. They may even go to church on a Sunday, and many of them do. They have a form of godliness. But do they have a relationship with the Holy Spirit? Have they been born again? That's the, the important question. You know, through Adam's sin, we all died spiritually. But through Jesus, we can be reborn. We can be born again spiritually. Those who deny the work and the power of the Holy Spirit, well, we're told to turn away from those kind of people. People that just are interested in godliness. And godliness in itself is really just religion. It's man's attempt to get right with God. That's all religion is. It's, you know, that kind of inner sense of we must do something. You know, if I do this and if I do that, then I must be right with God, I'll be okay. That's kind of the world's understanding. Sadly, many that go to church have that idea that if they go to church once a week, if they say nice things, if they maybe don't swear and don't drink too much and those kind of things, then that's okay. That's, that's, that's godliness. That gets you nowhere. So many are into rituals, but there is no reality to it. I like this quote from Chuck Misler. He said, just picking up on this verse, from such turn away. He said, if you are in a dead, cold, liberal church, and if you are a true believer, what are you doing there? The word of God says to avoid such things. Again, just a reminder. This know also that in the last days, go back to that first verse again, that perilous times shall come. We are in those days. These are, these are days where evil, evil things, dangerous things. That's what that word perilous, we were looking at this last week. And we are living right in the midst of that time now. Picking up verse 6, it says, For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women, laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. He's talking about those people that profess some sort of godliness, they have some sort of religion, and they try and draw people after them into effectively what amounts to no more than a social club. And people get swept up into those things. You know, we all like to be part of something, don't they? You know, we, we see it very much with social media. You know, everybody that's into social media, and I'm really not into social media at all. But the people that are, you know, it's all about having as many likes as you can have. It's trying to, trying to have as many people around you that support you. And, and we are naturally people that like to have people like us. Well, there's nothing more beautiful than a life that is serving God, I can tell you that to start with. But, you know, the people that go down this road, they'll do anything just to try and be accepted and get led astray and all sorts of these things. And that verse 7 there speaks so much of what we see in the church today. People that are ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Lots of information going in. But if it's not changing your heart, if it's not changing your soul, if it's just 
something that's benefiting you intellectually, then probably not of any value at all. We've just given a couple of examples here by Paul uh, to Timothy. And now as Janice and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. These men, these men that are mentioned when Moses is going to Pharaoh. These men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. It's interesting that these two magicians that are mentioned here, they actually did miracles. They did things that were tangible. Yeah, we shouldn't be surprised if people are led astray by, but, but they do this in this church or this, they do that. This group, I went there, I saw that. Well, okay, but does it agree with what the Bible says? The line of a song I remember once said, if the Bible doesn't back it, then it seems quite clear. Perhaps it was the devil that whispered in your ear. Yeah, the Bible is the foundation. Satan is very able to do miracles. He's the great imitator. And most Christians underestimate the degree to which he intervenes and manipulates. And these ones here spoken of as reprobate concerning the faith. They've been tested and found to be counterfeit. But they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, uh, as theirs also was. Speaking of Janice and Jambri. In other words, by your fruit you'll know them. You know, those who oppose the good are going to be exposed. And then we get on to Timothy. And I'm going to leave it here because I really want to build on this and start there. We've looked at all the negative and we now get on to the positive side of it as Paul starts to speak about Timothy and his life and the things that he's endured, the things that he's seen Paul endure. Paul's going to go through speaking of his own challenges and he's going to conclude with that great statement that from a child Timothy had known the Holy Scriptures. Oh, how important to get Scripture into children when they're young. You know, Whenever possible, and most nights where we can, we read the Bible to our girls. We want them to fall in love with the Bible. I got this lovely thing at the moment in the mornings on the train. Marla texts me, you know, just good morning, Daddy. How are you? And I just text back, and we have a few little just chats about the day. And now every morning, I send her a verse from Psalm 119. I just want her mind and her heart to be full of Scripture. I want her to be like Timothy. Yeah, from a child, knowing the scriptures. Because that will change you. You know, people have this, this mindset that children grow up and that they, they go, have to go off into the world and learn and find and eventually they can get back. No, that's not the case. Children don't have to go through that time of rebellion. In fact, I want to see what we saw this morning. Children rebelling for the good. Standing up in front of their teachers and saying, no teacher, that is not true. I do not believe in that. And you can't force me to believe in the things that you believe if the Bible doesn't teach it. So we'll, we'll come back to this and we'll build on it next week. Again, all these studies will go online. So if you're not able to be here and you want to carry on, then please uh, go onto the website. You'll be able to listen uh, as we carry on in our study through Second Timothy. Let's bow our hearts, shall we? Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time this morning that we've been able to worship you, share together, be encouraged uh, Lord, just see the way you're working in these children's lives. Oh, and Lord, just be aware of how you're working in our lives too. Father, we are aware that we live in a world that really has, by and large, rejected you and the knowledge of you. Lord, it seems foolishness to this world. Oh, but Lord, we recognize that it was through the foolishness of preaching of the cross, Lord, you've chosen to save those who would respond. 
And Father, help us to be bold, help us to be strong, help us not to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it is the power of God unto salvation. And Lord, we recognize that there is still a multitude that you will bring in. Lord, you're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to that place of accepting and receiving Jesus as their Lord, as their substitute. So Father, we pray you be with us as we go from here this day, that we will live our lives for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's spend some time fellowshipping over some teas and coffees. May God richly bless you through this week.